Welcome, everyone. It's a wrap with rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. Before we start, I would like to thank all our listeners, sponsors, and supporters that have helped make this podcast so successful. The podcast is being heard in all 50 states, all provinces of Canada, and 45 countries around the world. Once again, thank you all so much. And if you please share the podcast with your friends and family, that would be so much appreciated. This podcast features people who have overcome life's challenges and adversities, people who can inspire, motivate, and educate us on an assortment of topics. Today, my guest is Charles Smith. Charles is an author who offers lifelong experience. Charles has lived with compounded post-traumatic stress disorder, CPTSD, for going on 40 years and has been in long-term addiction recovery since 1993, in which the Army Infantry basic training was his detox. As a self-help author, he has added real-life experiences to his books. He does this for people who have to live with this condition every day, from veterans like himself to civilians who were dealt a bad hand like himself. Charles has an amazing life story to tell. He is not only an author, Army Infantry veteran. He is a certified peer support specialist with a vast knowledge of compounded post-traumatic stress disorder, has addiction recovery and practical awareness through his own life experiences and in a working professional capacity through his own research and has a degree in human services. Charles is here to tell his story to inspire others and show them no matter how bad life gets, if you keep pushing, fight hard and refuse to be put down, then you can rise above and have a good life no matter what cards you are dealt with. Welcome, Charles, to the podcast. Hey, Vaughn, it's great to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, it's a it, it's an honor to have you. I, we're so happy to have you, and you have such an interesting story to tell. Now, I read your life story, uh, and it's amazing what you have overcome. So let's start at the beginning. Tell us about your early years, up to age 11, and growing up as an orphan. All right, well, um, I was born in a town called Millbury, Mass., and I was brought up there the first couple of years of my life. And then my father lost everything. He had multiple nursing homes. He had land all around all around the, the Worcester County. And everything went up in smoke. Not literally, but figuratively. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and then after that, my grandfather had to build a duplex, like, overnight for us to live in because he even lost his house wow yeah now, how how old were you about you were about maybe three years old when that happened three or four maybe yeah okay yeah yeah and um as a matter of fact if i could look out this this wall right here i would see the duplex that it that i lived in as a, as a child oh yeah yeah then uh at six years old my mother <laughs> passed away of um, drugs and alcohol, she began mixing them, and I, I guess she mixed the wrong stuff one night, and that was it. Yeah. And then um, after that, my uh, my father brought us out to um, different places like Texas and Arizona, all all around, just moving us everywhere. I I um. I actually stayed back in second grade because we moved so much. I didn't. I wasn't in one school long enough to uh, graduate to third grade. Do you have any idea why, from Massachusetts, you went all the way out to like Arizona? I, I guess you were on a 
from what I understand, you were on a, a Navajo reservation. Yeah, um, that I really don't know why he wanted to move around everywhere. I know Probably. my 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 mother's uh, family kind of blamed him for the loss. Because, yeah, so he probably just wanted to get out of that area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, the Navajo Reservation was interesting. I um, my father was a chef, and he was hired as a chef at one of the colleges out on the Navajo Reservation in um near like Phoenix, Arizona. Uh huh. Yeah. And we we were housed out there while he while he worked out there, and that was difficult because I was the token white child. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How, did, how how were you treated? Was was that was that hard on you? No, no. When, you know, let me back up. When when you when when you went mm. out there, did you have any siblings going with you? I had one older sister, two years older. Okay, so she, yeah. she so she was with you. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was me, my sister, and my my dad, and um, yeah, we had a, I had a difficult time. My sister really didn't have a difficult time, but I did for some reason. The school kids, you know, didn't like me being on the reservation. Yeah, and yeah, so well, that that's got to be hard when you're that young too. Yeah, yeah. They um they actually there's a folklore out there about skinwalkers. It's a mythological creature that um they say can run up to like sixty miles an hour, wears the skins of its victims on its back. They they made me believe that the thing was coming after me. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's gotta be traumatic. Yeah. And then one time I guess they wanted me to become part of their like brotherhood and i was forced to be a blood brother let me, let me guess let me guess about that <laughs> i can only imagine yeah 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 i was i was in a um a house with other kids and all of a sudden somebody held me down and i i had to cut they cut my hand and I had to shake hands with another, uh, with a Navajo. And when I did that, our blood exchanged. I don't even know my blood brother's name, <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah. I, well, I, I, I kind of wish I did now. Yeah. I think it would be interesting. It's something in common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now take us through your life journey from age 11 uh, up to when you joined the military. What was going on then as a young adult? What was going on? Well, when I was 11, my father passed away. And then we were brought back here to Massachusetts, to, to Worcester. And I lived with my aunt and uncle. And my grandparents next door were my legal guardians. And um, I remember just being angry, thinking that my father left us. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I look back on it now and I think he tried to save us because we were in we were in a dirt poor uh living condition. Like, how did your how did your uncle find out where you were? My my luckily my family's not Smith. My family's um an Italian family. Okay. 
And um, they, the police called uh, Dorenzo. They looked for Dorenzo's in Worcester, down in one of my great uncles. And this was like two o'clock in the morning or something. And woke him up. And then he called my grandfather. And, okay. my, and my grandfather sent my uncle down to go and get us gotcha. in Texas and bring us back. So you were in Texas, like right around the border? Or? I was at Van Horn, Texas at that time. Okay. Yeah. Now it's a little bit more well-known because of the uh, stuff going on with NASA and Van Horn, Texas. But um, <laughs> back then, it was like a one-horse town. Per yeah. Se. yeah. You know? So... So you're, uh, you're, you said you were kind of, you were, you were in an angry mood, resentment. Uh, I was angry and vengeful. I was just really, um, which is understandable. Yeah. 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 Like I talked to my friends now that I had back then and, um, I asked one of them back in August. I'm like, what was I like growing up? Cause I, I, I honestly forget what my PTSD and my TBI. And I was like, what was I like growing up? And he, he said that um I was looking for family and okay. I found it within my friends because I my uncle and my grandfather and everybody were trying to like be my parents and I didn't want any of that. I just the more they tried, the more I pushed back. Uh was there any uh substance abuse or anything like that going on? Later in um like 15, 16, we started, me and my friends started drinking and smoking pot and smoking cigarettes. But um, when I was about 17, 18, I started hanging out with uh, one of my cousins who was into crack cocaine. And I, um, I ended up doing it with him. And that's when I really got more and more into, into crack. And I ended up being um, just just graduating high school by the, by the skin of my teeth, just um, existing. And my aunt told me, "Get out, get a job, or don't come back." So, so she tells you that, and that was around 1993, I guess. Yeah, and that's when you decide to join the military. Uh, tell us, tell us about your military experience. And I understand during basic training and what they call AIT, advanced individual training, uh, you were actually, and I don't know if others knew around you, but you were actually detoxing. Yeah. I had, a, I, I, had a, I had a couple of people that did know um, other uh, soldiers. Dave figured it out along the way, but um, it was one of the most difficult things in my life. But the commanding officers, no idea? No. No, no. No idea. No, I mean, I was just a skinny kid from Worcester. They didn't know why I was skinny because I was dead to years of crack. But, um, yeah. So you you were at Fort Benning in Georgia? Yes, yep, yep. And that's pretty rigorous going through boot camp and all that. That was very rigorous, and that was one of the things that um, was most difficult for me was not only was I trying to get stronger mentally, but also the physical part was just, you know, I, I had um, 
had a couple of friends, Hall, last name was Hall, and I had one guy, Dagger, that um they kept on pushing me to do push-ups and sit-ups, and they stayed up late with me all the time, and just, you know, they yeah. got me through it. I got myself to it, but they got me through it. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm glad yeah. you had the help. Did, yeah. do, do you think the training helped or hurt you? I think it helped. I I think it gave me something else to focus on. I mean, it, it's like I I work for um, an addiction recovery center now. Let me break away for a moment to tell you about a 304-page doctor-written and approved guide on how to manage most health situations when help is not on the way or while you are waiting for it to arrive. If you want to see what happens when things go south, all you have to do is look at Venezuela. No electricity, no running water, no law, no antibiotics, no painkillers, no anesthetics, no insulin, and other important things. But if you want to find out how you can still manage in a situation like that, you must also look to Venezuela and learn the ingenious ways they developed to cope. The guide was written by a team of three people, Dr. Mabel Nieves, who is still working as a frontline doctor in Caracas, Dr. Rodrigo Alterio, who lived and treated isolated communities deep in the Amazon jungle, where there are no doctors or pharmacies for thousands of miles and is currently practicing surgery at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, and Claude Davis, a survival and natural remedies expert. Together, they created something unique, a practical guide when there is no doctor, pharmacy, or hospital. Dr. Nieves is known for developing new ingenious methods of treating patients after Venezuela's economy collapsed, and hospital and pharmacies ran out of medicine, supplies, electricity, and running water. The methods she developed and pioneered are now studied and applied in conflict zones all over the world. Many of these protocols and procedures do not require medical assistance as they are specifically applied to be self-applied. That makes them extremely valuable if the medical system cannot be depended on, like during long-term blackouts and natural disasters. Now, some of the things you will find inside the guide. 10 medical supplies you need to have in your house. The biggest mistakes you can make in a blackout. How to recognize a heart attack and what to do next. What happens when you take expired medications? The only four antibiotics you need to stockpile legally without a prescription. The best natural painkiller that grows in your backyard. An ingenious way to stockpile prescription medicines, including insulin. How to quickly recognize a stroke and what to do immediately afterward. What happens if you take the wrong probiotics. A simple at-home protocol for flu and other respiratory issues. And a step-by-step -step approach to deal with almost every skin injury and condition how to take care of toothaches and mouth infections when you can't visit a dentist, and many other topics too numerous to mention. The guide would make an excellent gift and can be purchased by clicking the link in the podcast notes under Sponsor, which will have in-depth information about the guide. The guide sells for the incredibly low price of $37 for the digital version and $37 plus $9.99 shipping and handling for the physical copy. And for a limited time, there are two additional gifts in store for you all still free of charge for now. Also, a 60-day money-back guarantee is offered if you are not completely satisfied with your purchase. Once again, click the link in the podcast notes under sponsor. Called Aware Recovery Care. Uh-huh. They have it down there in Florida, too. Okay. And um, one thing I tell my clients is, you know, they're like, oh, it, it must have been so difficult. I'm like, you guys have choice. My choice was taken away from me, you know? 
right. willingly I took my choice away from me. But like the um people struggling with alcoholism and stuff, they can go they have the choice to go down to the, the bar or go down to the liquor store. I don't have I didn't have that choice. That's true. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or you so, would have been boo you would have been booted out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That yep, would have been yep. that would have been the end of it. Yeah. So, so after your military experience, from what I understand, uh, things kind of went downhill fast. Uh, tell us about that. I know there was a, a couple of losses going on in the family of yours. And uh, I know there was uh, some incidents uh, of carving. You could tell us about that. And, yeah. of course, depression. And, and then there was actual suicide attempts. So, yeah. Can you can you talk yeah. about that a little a couple of years after I got out, I got out in 96, and then that happened in 2001. My grandfather and my uncle both died a month apart from cancer, and that, that was like losing my father twice all over again. Yeah. You know, and and it, it didn't hit me that it was like that until it happened, you know, because I, I spent so much time like pushing back and stuff that when it when they died, it was like... Now you lost your chance. Huge hole. Huge yeah, hole. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that put me in a really dark, dark depression. And um I I began uh carving on myself a, a razor. Thankfully it was a razor because it didn't leave any big scars on me. But um yeah, just to feel something other than what I was feeling. To stop that that aching in my in my heart. Yeah, a lot yeah. a lot of pain. A lot of pain. Yeah. Yeah, a tremendous amount of pain. And I I'm often asked why didn't I go back to uh you know, drinking, drugging or even smoking pot. And I don't have an answer. I just didn't. So you would say that you that was probably your rock bottom. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And that's when I Decided to uh, just end it one night. I carved the words um, "fu world" spelled out "f." Yeah, "fu world" in, in yeah. my arm. Yeah, and uh, took a bottle of sleeping pills and went to sleep. Really? And, wow. Yeah, yeah. And then a couple hours later, my my friends came home and they found me. And because I was living with friends at the time, and they came home and they found me and they rushed me or they called the paramedics. And the paramedics um, sent an ambulance, and you know, then I was in a hospital, uh, UMass Hospital in Worcester, and that's when they um, they pumped my stomach and everything, and I stayed a few, a couple, I think I stayed a couple of days there, and then they sent me to um, a psych ward in Brockton. It was a VA psych yeah. ward. In Brockton, and um, after that, after spending about a, I'd say a week there, they sent me to a place called Court Street Shelter in Boston, which was actually full. So at that time, I went out. They they said, "Hey, there's no there's no place for you," you know, and just like that, no place, yeah, no yeah. place to sleep, and. You're out of here. Is that it? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's no yeah. way to treat a veteran. And by the way, thank you for your service. You are welcome. And no, it's not. 
Yeah, like there's there's a couple of uh, shelters around that you can sleep in, but I stayed one night in one, and I had to smuggle a knife in, and I slept with it underneath my pillow because of the stories that I heard. Wow, people being robbed and molested and all kinds of all kinds of. So nah. there's there's really no supervision in these places to speak of. There is, but these when when you when you have like. 50 to 100 people, not right. just veterans, but civilians and veterans alike. And you maybe have a handful of uh, staff. Yeah. You really can't keep an eye on everything. Right, right. Yeah. So so from there, you're like, you're homeless on the streets of Boston. Yeah. And, yeah. and we've done some podcasts uh, with our friends out in Los Angeles on the homeless in past broadcasts. Uh, but for for those who are listening to this and don't even have, you know, we all see homeless people. But uh, tell us what what is that life like, and, and, and how long were you how long were you uh, were you on those streets? I was on the streets for I honestly forget. I think about a month or two. I think the time was really a blur. Yeah, but um, I remember like showers were out of the question. You stayed wherever you could to get shelter. There's there's homeless encampments all around Boston. Like even in Worcester, there's like 200 different homeless encampments. And and what what year was this that was this this was happening? This was 2001. It was right before. No, it was right after. Um, 9/11. Yeah, right after 9/11. Yeah, okay. yeah, and I, I, I would stay in different um homeless encampments. I would stay in like ATM booths. You know, you have your ATM card. Yeah, and you get into the the. Room. Oh yeah, right. I would stay in one of those if it was raining. You know, um, you would learn when people in restaurants would leave food out and get food that way. You would um, it was like a. Places that you could you can get food, like uh, soup kitchens and whatnot. Well, let me ask you a question. Um, being a veteran, didn't did, didn't you have some money coming in from the from the VA? Not right away, no. No. No, no. So you're pretty I, much I, you're destitute out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I had like a five hundred dollar limit on my credit card, which was gone in the first couple of weeks. You know, on on my my bank card rather, which was gone in a couple of weeks, and that's five hundred that you can overdraft. So then, after that, I was I didn't have any more money except for, and I I really did didn't um, panhandle because yeah. I've, I've always had a problem asking people for stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, so you kind of just had to fend for yourself. Yeah, yep, yep. And it's uh, a couple of months. Yeah, and, and then I went back to uh, Court Street Shelter eventually, and they did put me up. Okay. And then that's when I was able to um, get uh, veterans money because I had talked to a counselor, and he said, hey, uh, he introduced me to the VA and everything, and that's mm-hmm. where I also found out that I had PTSD. But, yeah, they, they got they got me um, – non-service connected which is like a thousand dollars a month 
with the VA. So what's what's interesting is you learn about all this while you're on the streets, but what was any of this told to you before you were discharged? No. Really? And I I I didn't even really know about um the VA. I mean, even even though I was in the Brockton VA. Yeah. I was so out of it, I didn't even know that um so nobody nobody yeah. took nobody took the extra step and said, Hey, you know, when Charles feels better, we're gonna take him aside and teach him what's going on with the VA. Nobody right. really nobody really did that. No. You no. Kind of, you fell be, you fell between the cracks. Yeah. So to, so to speak. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh so what are your thoughts uh on the current homeless situation of our veterans and what do you think can be done uh to stem the tide? Uh, of our vets, especially the vets that have, and we'll get into this, the, the compounded PTSD. Right. What are your thoughts on that? I think a lot of homeless in general, um, how do I say this? They, uh, in my experience, the homeless shelters would fill up in the wintertime and they would clear out in the summertime. And a lot of that has to do with addiction. Okay. And when I say that, I don't mean that every homeless person is an addict, right? Or in you know because they're not, right? People get homeless for all kinds of different reasons. Sure. So I don't want that stigma um, going. But um, for veterans, like I, I was talking to one guy in England uh, last week, a little week before, and he was saying how when a veteran in England is affected by PTSD on the battlefield or, you know, in the military, then they, they, um, they work on it right there, right then and there. A lot of us, we fall through the cracks, as you said, Yeah. with the PTSD. I think that is one of the major um, things that we need to work on is getting these veterans help as soon as possible. You know, right. If and you're in a firefight, yeah. Yeah. And probably early diagnosis, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. 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 Like have like um I know it's wartime and whatever, but have like a sit down with each each soldier after a battle. Yeah. Say, hey, how how do you think this affected you? And let them know that it's okay to reach out. Right. That it's okay if you're if you're being ill affected. So, do you think there? Do you think there's a stigma with some of the with the men? You know, I they don't they don't lot, want to come forward. I think a lot of people are like, um, it's not manly. Yeah, to come forward. Not a macho thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And it's it's really um, sad because if you get the help, then like I did. Like the life, you know, the life you live is just phenomenal yeah. afterwards. Things are going to open know? up. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Charles, Charles, tell us how you were diagnosed with PTSD and tell our audience the difference between PTSD and what we call compounded PTSD or abbreviated CPTSD. Yeah. Um, I was diagnosed when I when I first went to the VA. They asked me my history, and I told them, and 
my psych doctor was like, you've had PTSD since you were, I would bet that you've had PTSD since you were six years old. Yeah. When your mother passed away. Sure. And, you know, that, that, that was just phenomenal because I, um, I was undiagnosed for all that time. I was in my thirties. Yeah. Yeah. So So that's like 20 plus years that I was undiagnosed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what's, what's the difference between regular PTSD and compounded PTSD? PTSD is, um, if you're affected by one or maybe two triggers. Okay. You know, like, um, it can be a car accident. It can be, uh, a gunfight. It can be, you know, getting into a fight. Any, any, like, um, especially anything that would make you almost lose your life, like okay. a secure car accident or something like that. Pounded or complex PTSD, they call it both. But um, that is, you know, multiple triggers over time, multiple traumas over time. Like um, you, you see it a lot in domestic violence. You see okay. it a lot in um, first responders, people that have suffered through many, many different traumas. Yeah, and I'm diagnosed with CP- CPTSD because of all the multiple traumas that I've I've yeah. had in my life. Absolutely. So, yeah. so once diagnosed, you knew that you could begin proper recovery. Charles, what was the driving force that made you get up uh, dust yourself off and move forward. Seeing the other veterans that were suffering, you know, because I, I don't know why it didn't happen to me in the past, but um, seeing all the different veterans was really, you know, it it was an eye opener. Just like, hey, you're not alone. There's yeah. other people suffering here. They need help. What are you going to do about it? So light bulb went off yeah, yeah. in your head. Did it yeah. say, I want to help these people down the road yeah. after I get myself together? Yeah, yeah. And I, I even um, helped them as I was getting myself up, too. There was a lot of them that I I helped yeah. get myself up. Which probably um, made you feel really good. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about coping skills. You talk about coping skills, I know. How did you find yours, and how can people develop them? My own coping skills began um, when I was in a in a shelter in Gardner. I went for a walk once, and I ran into um, a place called Gardner Martial Arts Academy. And I, I walked by a couple times before I actually had the guts to go in. Mm-hmm. And then I I met who's still a great friend of mine, Vinny Smith, and um I met him and he uh, he brought me on as one of his students, and that became one of my like main coping skills. And then after time, I I got into meditation, I got into yoga, boxing, and some other active coping skills. You have to find your own coping skills. Like, I, I can't tell you that meditation is going to work for you. Right. I can't tell you yoga or anything else is going to work for you. The way that you find them is something that 
makes you happy. Something okay. that um, has a positive impact on you. So you know, for, for people out there, it could be gardening, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yep. Yep. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Or exercise, right? Yeah, definitely. Yep. Walking. Okay. I, I, I go, we have a place called Purgatory Chasm here. And I go for walks over there like twice a week, you know, just out in the wilderness. It's like a lot of different rock formations and stuff that you can climb on. And so, yeah. Yeah. So, but, yeah, there's negative in coping, there's negative coping skills and positive coping skills. Now, what, would be a, what would be a negative one? Like drugs, alcohol. Oh, oh okay. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something that, yeah. yeah. Something that has a negative effect on you. So you want to stay away from those. You yeah. just want to find the uh, positive coping skills. Now, one of your attributes is being a certified peer support specialist. What is it? What it? What is a certified peer support specialist? A certified peer support specialist is um, I am certified to work with people in mental health, okay. like, with coping skills, helping them develop coping skills, helping them helping them um, acclimate into the community. That that sort of thing. I've I've done a lot of that in my in my past. And that transfers over now to aware recovery care, where I'm a uh, recovery coach. So it's kind of like the same thing. And the funny thing about my uh, CP- CPS certificate is I did that just so people would take me more seriously. Well, you know, <laughs> now, I was going to ask you, they must take you seriously because if you're like a you know, say an addict that's having problems and you need help and you come along. Mm. I mean, all you got to do is tell them your story and I'm sure they can relate to you. It's not like, it's not like you're coming out of college with who's never had a, taken a drug in their life or something. You know, I mean, you're, you're the real deal. You've been through it. Right. Right. I'm sure you, you must get a ton of respect for what you're doing. In, in in the people in recovery and stuff like that, I get a ton of respect. Yeah. But um people look for people that have like businesses and whatnot. They look for people, oh, do you have any degrees? Yeah, life. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You have any degrees on paper? <laughs> and now I can say, Yeah, I graduated top of my class in human services for your associate's degree. I am a uh, recovery coach, and I'm also, and I also have various other um, certificates too. Yeah, and I did all that just to shut those people up. Yeah, that was smart of you. That was definitely, <laughs> <laughs> definitely smart of you. Uh, curious, how do you get people? Uh, what, what's your what's your philosophy on on getting them to stop addicting habits? One is developing positive habits, developing new habits. Um, another one is, you know, if if you're if you're battling battling alcoholism, stay out of the bars, stay out of the uh, liquor source, yeah, um, that sort of thing. Um, I teach people, my clients, a lot about mindfulness. Mindfulness, okay. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of them. They're stuck in the past. 
like, oh, I heard this one with my alcoholism and this one hates me because of this. And, you know, they just dwell on that. So I, I try to, I try to help them to focus more on the here and now and the future because, you know, we, we've all made mistakes. We've all burned bridges along the way. Yeah. You know, but, um, the people that are going to forgive you are going to forgive you. And the ones that don't are not. And that's the bottom line. And you just got to accept it and move on. Yeah. Yep. Acceptance. So you, you're now an author of several health, uh, several self health books. Uh, tell us about your books uh, and where they can be found. Uh, I know your, your self-protection book was your first book, I believe. Then you, then you did a book on, uh, PTSD, and then you did another book on positive thinking and one on addiction recovery, if I have it, if I have it correct. So can you yep. tell us a little bit about that, where they, where you can... They can all them? be found on uh, lifelongexperience.net. Okay, that's your website? Yes, yep, yep. And um, yeah, I have one on um, self-protection, which also has uh, information on surviving a active shooter event and I teach people I don't teach them to fight I teach them to use their heads okay to think your way out of a situation instead of um, you know fighting your way out because a lot of uh, there's a lot of seminars out there that um, teach people like hand to hand you know like Come to this one-hour class of hand-to-hand, and you'll be able to protect your, yourself on the streets. No, that's not how it works. No. You, it, for me to use a technique effectively in a hostile situation where my adrenaline is pumping and, you know, there's stuff going at my face. Right. You have to train for 90 hours on one technique in order to use it like that without even thinking about it. 90 you know? hours, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Approximately, give or take. But you have to work, you have to train in, you know, something for a long time, not just a one-hour seminar. Right. You, you know, and so I, I teach people, like, um, different techniques such as, uh, if you're if you're thinking you're being followed in a car, where's the first place you should go? I would think a police station, maybe. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, so you're telling them you're telling them how to use your head and not panic, but use yeah common exactly. sense to get out of these situations. Yep. 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 And I worked as a private investigator for a time. And people like drones a lot, especially in the morning. Like if if I wanted to follow someone that I thought was cheating on their husband or their wife or something like that, I wouldn't wait outside their house and follow them. <laughs> no, yeah. I I would wait at their Dunkin' Donuts, or I would wait a couple of streets down where I know they're gonna pass, you know. And then and then I would go, I would follow them because. People go the same way every 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 day. Creatures you know? of habit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yep. Can you can can you give our audience uh and I, I don't want you to give away all your stuff, but 
maybe just a couple self-protection tips. Yeah, um, if you're attacked, like uh, with my, I don't know where my keys are right now, but um, if you're attacked, you don't hold your keys in like, um, you know, in between your fingers, like a lot of people show you to do. Yeah. You want to hold your biggest key like a knife and use yeah. it just like a knife. A jab. Yeah, jab, um, slash, even slash to the face or whatever. Okay. Um, if someone is attacking you, scratch them. Get DNA underneath your fingernails. So Smart. if the worst does happen, they can, you know, find who the killer is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you're being followed on, like, walking on the streets and being followed, act like you're on your phone. Even if you're not on your phone. Or call somebody, you know, be like, um, hey, how you doing? You know, just even if you're acting out a conversation, just so that person knows, the person following you knows that if I attack that person, then that someone else is going to know about it. You yeah, know? All, all very good stuff. Now, this isn't this yeah. is in, this is in one of your books, correct? Yeah, yep, it's in uh, Enlightened. Okay. Yep. So so all these books can be obtained on lifelongexperience.net, which is uh, Charles's website. Yep. Uh, and I'll have that in the podcast notes. So if you can't okay. remember it, it'll be listed in the podcast notes. Could you give, please give our audience some parting words for people out there? Yeah, there's one thing that I always tell at the end of a podcast. Um my suicide attempt was 20 years ago. My son is 10. You know, you you do the math. Yeah. If I succeeded back then, and the one thing that I'm glad I, I failed in, then not only would he not be here, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here talking to you. I wouldn't be a seven-time author. You know, the list goes on and on of things that, Right. What wouldn't happen? You know, some of the best times of your life can happen after the darkest hours of your life. Never give up. Yeah. Yeah. Keep keep pushing forward. Keep, you know, even if you, you know, have, have to get help, get help. You know, don't be afraid to get help. Right. Just do what you have to do to, like they say in AA. 24 hours, you know, take it 24 hours at a time. Right. And One day at a time, keep pushing. Exactly. Yep, yep. I want to thank you, Charles, so much for sharing uh, your story. And I wish you nothing but happiness, good health, and success in your pursuit to help others. Uh, comments and suggestions for the podcast, you can email me at it's a wrap with rap at gmail.com. We have a website, it's a wrap with rap.com. All the episodes are on the website, as well as all the major platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, Pandora, all of them. Uh, Facebook group, uh, which is in the thousands, and our page is It's a Wrap with Rap. Instagram, again, that's in the thousands of members. It's a Wrap with Rap podcast. The podcast will be on Instagram. We're on YouTube. For the video, uh, it's a wrap with wrap the podcast uncut, and all the episodes are on that. 
And I want to thank everyone for listening. I want everybody to please stay safe out there. And for now, it's a wrap. <laughs>